The Scoop Podcast, brought to you by PPG, the official paint of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, here's your host, Josh Getzoff. What's up, everybody? Happy March. Welcome into another episode of the Scoop Podcast presented by our friends at PPG Paints. I'm your host, Josh Getzoff. And well, the month of March is also known as Gender Equality Month. And the National Hockey League always does a great job of highlighting the many women who make the game go on many different fronts on both a nightly and daily basis. And zeroing in the microscope a bit more here to Pittsburgh, that's no different in the Penguins organization. There are many women who are a part of the heartbeat of the hockey team you have grown up loving and following, and they all play a big role in making the Penguins the franchise that they are and that they have become through the years. But when you go back over the years, it's kind of hard to find a woman associated with the Pittsburgh Penguins that's been around longer and been more of a trailblazer for not just women in hockey, but women in sports in general than Pittsburgh's own Cindy Himes. She's a 1977 graduate of Duquesne University, and right after that graduation, cap and gown off, business attire on, Cindy began working for the Penguins that year and never looked back. And now seven general managers, 18 head coaches, and most importantly, five Stanley Cups later, she is still a part of the fabric of the organization, serving as the Penguins Director of Community and Alumni Relations after previously working as a public relations assistant and administrative assistant to the general manager and the team's director of public and media relations. That was a position she became only the third woman in the history of the sport to hold. It's been an incredible journey for Cindy, whose longevity within the organization is matched by how universally well-liked she is. One of my favorite people to cross paths with in normal times at the rink. It was great to chat with her here virtually about her career and what message she may have for any young girls and women out there when it comes to making their mark in the sports world. 44 years of working in sports experience coming your way and all of it in trailblazing fashion. The stories, the journey, the woman, here is my chat with Cindy Himes in episode 42 of the Scoop Podcast, presented by PPG Paints. Well, I think in today's landscape, there are certain people that you just miss not seeing on a daily basis. When you're at the rink, when you're in the offices, and for me, when I had a chance to, to reach out to Cindy Himes and be able to talk to her for this podcast, uh, that was one of the people I, I miss seeing you, Cindy, around the office when you drop by with a smile and, you know, anything going on with the Penguins Foundation and Penguins alumni, at least from our relationship. I know in the past, there's a lot more present with the Penguins that we're going to get to. But in any event, so great to have you on the Scoop podcast. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, great to be with you as well. And Cindy, I think a lot of people have probably heard your name. Um, they understand that you've been with the Penguins a long time, but my goal here with this conversation is for people to understand that you've been with the Penguins in a very impactful role for a long time. You haven't necessarily just been a bystander. You've been a trendsetter, uh, and here in Gender Equality Month, maybe it becomes a little bit more emphasized, but I'm taking the route also that I don't think one month lends credence to what you've accomplished in an entire career. So uh, it's been a long journey for you, but you are Pittsburgh born and bred. You are a Duquesne product. Uh, so how proud are you of that fact to your name that you've risen to where you've been within this Penguins organization right in your own backyard? Yeah, no, it, it's been great to have, a, uh, to have the longevity in a career uh, here in my hometown. And, uh, you know, it afforded me the benefit of uh, staying close with my family and my parents throughout the years and not having to uh, commute long distances to see the people that you care about. But, um, you know, plus being being a big, a huge fan of Pittsburgh sports teams since I was a kid and uh, being able to work in that industry for, uh, for an entire career has been a blessing indeed. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you've definitely, as I said, set the tone for a lot of young women and girls that have watched what you've been able to do and want to follow suit. And just, you know, for people to understand the longevity of your career, 1977, you graduate Duquesne and boom, 
you come right down the street to work for the Pittsburgh Penguins. How did that come about? And what, what kind of opened that door for you to the hockey world and the Penguins in particular? Yep. Well, my senior year at Duquesne University, um, I had to do a thesis on put a PR campaign together. And so because I was a hockey fan and a Penguins fan, I decided to do it on the Penguins. And um, so I went down to the Penguins offices. It's just down the bluff from school. And uh, I interviewed their PR guy, their marketing guy. And in, in the process of having those interviews, um, they offered me a part-time position working on uh, the reception desk and just sort of learning more about the organization and getting a lay of the land. And so I did work there part-time during my senior year at college. And then as soon as I graduated, they hired me full-time in 1977. So, um, so I was very fortunate that I had a job, a full-time job uh, as soon as I graduated, but even more to have a job doing something that, you know, I had hoped to do someday was uh, sort of a dream come true. I get the feeling in hearing you tell that story, Cindy, that you didn't necessarily have any fears about anyone saying, why is a woman coming into this setting and trying to find their way through this environment uh, to walk down there yourself and to do those interviews that speaks to me to, to some serious self-confidence what allowed you to have that going into that situation well um i i don't i don't know if it was that i had an overabundance of self-confidence but um i knew that i had to get that thesis paper <laughs> completed and um i had uh done some research on the two men that i went on to interview so i felt comfortable walking in the door and um you've got to remember that back you know how many years ago 1977 um the office was very small and uh welcoming you know it wasn't uh intimidating at all and from the minute I walked in the door and they greeted me, um, I just felt comfortable there. And uh, and I aced my thesis. So that was the important thing to me at the time. Exactly. And that, that kind of sent you on your way to obviously graduating Duquesne. And then as you mentioned, being hired by the Penguins. And I'm just going to run down real quickly for our listeners exactly what you've done with Pittsburgh. Uh, you spent seven years as a public relations assistant, then four years as the public relations assistant and administrative assistant to the general manager of the Penguins. From there, you go on for 10 years to be the director of public and media relations. And then in 1995, you move into your director of community and alumni relations, which you are still in to this day. Uh, now, of course, under the Pittsburgh Penguins Foundation umbrella since the year 2012. Uh, that's a lot of jumps forward. Um, do you think it was anything that you were doing in particular? I guess, what were you doing that allowed you, you know, to move up the ranks? You paid your dues. There's no question. Five years here, seven years there, but you kept moving up and people kept rewarding you. So obviously their faith in you and their confidence in you seemed to grow with each passing year that you were in the organization. Yeah, it, um, it, it was, uh, I had my um, reservations whenever, um, our general manager, his uh, assistant retired. And um, he asked me if I would work in his office. And, uh, and I said that he was a wonderful man. And, um, and I said that I'd be happy to do that, but only if I could keep my job in public relations because that's what I went to school for. And that's where um, I had hoped to work, you know, one day in, in a director's position. So he agreed that that would be fine. And so during the day in the office, I would work uh, in the general manager's office, type contracts, player contracts, do all that. And then um, 
on game nights, I would work up in the press box and do the PR stuff. And uh, then, uh, you know, a few years later, uh, they hired a, uh, we had a different general manager at the time and they hired a new assistant for him, which gave me an opportunity to uh, do more work in the PR area, which was uh, what I wanted to do long-term anyway. So it, it all worked out for the best, but I, I don't regret even a moment of uh, splitting my, my time like that because um, if, if there's one thing that I am very, very grateful for, it's that um, I had an opportunity to work with a lot of wonderful people through the years in hockey operations. And, um, and uh, I, I really am extremely lucky that, uh, that I got to work with the people that I did through the years. Yeah, just to, to name some of those people, uh, you mentioned a couple general managers there that you worked under that at least played a role in transitioning you up through the organization. You had Eddie Johnston, who's, of course, still with the Penguins organization in the capacity, uh, Tony Esposito, Craig Patrick, Ray Shiro, and most recently Jim Rutherford and now Ron Hextall. Uh, some pretty big names in the hockey world that have had a lot of success. I guess two-parter for you, Cindy, who was the GM that kind of gave you that opening um, that you mentioned earlier, and then who was the next one who I guess transitioned you more to a, a public relations role? Yep, uh, Baz Bastine is the uh, GM who asked me to work in his office, and then um, I continued that under Eddie Johnston, and uh, and then um, went on to doing PR full time uh, after that. So. Um, Baz was the GM when I started at the Penguins and, um, and then EJ, EJ's been wonderful throughout the years. Uh, I can't say enough about, uh, about EJ and, uh, actually EJ and Bob Barry were, uh, two of the men responsible for me having an opportunity to be the director of media relations. Um, at the time, there had only been two females in the history of the league who had that job. And um, what happened in Pittsburgh is Terry Schiffer, who was the director of PR, was promoted into director of team services. So that left the director of media relations open and I had heard one day in the office that they were going to bring some people in and interview for that job. And I said, you know, what? why am I working here as the assistant to the PR director if you're not going to give me an opportunity to uh, do that job when, when it becomes available? And... Uh, so I talked to Eddie Johnston, who was the GM at the time. I talked to Bob Barry, who was our head coach. And they were both extremely supportive. And they gave me the opportunity to be the third uh, female in the history of the league, hold that job. And um, I, just, I guess I did okay. I stayed in it for over a decade. Yeah, I'd say you did all right. Uh, what did it mean to you to get that opportunity? That's a pretty, um, when you say that, when you think about the game of hockey and particularly the National Hockey League and how long it's been around and how many people have walked through doors and all the buildings in the league and all the cities in the league, to be the third woman to hold that title in a public relations role, how much of a, a trailblazing moment is that for you? Are you able to appreciate it more now? I guess when, when you look back on it in the moment, I'm sure you're just determined to keep you know, making your mark and rising up the ladder. Yeah, I think at the time, Josh, um, you know, I, di I didn't think of it as being a trailblazer at all. Um, probably never even entered my mind. Um, it's just that uh, I thought it was so unfair that they would uh, hire somebody from, from outside when I had experience and had already worked, you know, so many years in that department. 
and um, and so I was just focused on not so much moving up as moving into a job that was ideal for you know the education that I had. I majored in journalism and uh, right out of college worked in a PR department for the uh, team. So I thought. I really honestly believed that I was qualified to uh, step into that role. And uh, and I'm, I'm just so appreciative that EJ and Bob were, uh, were willing to uh, take a chance and give me the opportunity. And certainly you made the most of that as you continued to rise through the organization, as I mentioned earlier, holding a couple different roles. Uh, into that director of public and media relations role. And I happened to notice the year when when I looked at that, uh, 1984, which just so happens to be a pretty big year in Pittsburgh Penguins history. And I can't help but think, Cindy, that you are the reason that Mario Lemieux came on board to Pittsburgh. In all, in all seriousness, uh, you're forever tied to him, Cindy. You moved to that role. The Penguins draft him first overall. We all know the, uh, the the great video clip from the draft that year of EJ saying it into the microphone and announcing the Penguin selection of Mario Lemieux. Um, what was that whole experience like for you when you knew this kid was coming in? Everyone knew he was really, really good, but it's not like today where there's a thousand video clips and everything of that nature. You're mm -hmm. kind of relying a little bit more on hearsay and the people that have seen him live and in action Obviously, just didn't disappoint once he got here. But what was that whole lead up like to him getting here? Yeah, that's a uh, that's that's one of my um, you know top ten memories. I would think uh, I was sitting at the draft table that day. I was about halfway down the table, and uh, everybody knew that um, you know that EJ was going to pick Mario Lemieux, and. He was actually sitting in the stands behind me. So when EJ made that announcement, I turned around in my chair to, uh, you know, to look up at where Mario was sitting. And, um, you know, as the story goes, Mario did not come down to the table at that time. But, um, but I did get to meet him uh, afterwards. And, uh, You've got to remember, Mario didn't speak a whole lot of English at that time, and uh, but he was such a, a nice kid, and um, you know, very uh, very quiet, and uh, it was just the beginning of of a long storied uh, history for him in uh, in our city. When he walks around now and when he appears in a place now, he seems to have this stature about him. I mean, mm -hmm. at least I feel that way. Whenever I'm in his presence, you kind of feel the presence. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that then when he was an 18-year-old joining the Penguins? Could you tell this guy was going to be something special? Oh, I think I think everybody could tell. He, um, like I said, he was a, a quiet young man, but, um, but he was very confident and... Um, you know, uh, he knew that, uh, you know, he, he knew um, what he was capable of. And um, he was just a very confident young man. I mean, we I didn't talk to him much because I don't speak French. Um, but, uh, but he was a really nice kid and his, his parents and, um, his brothers, they were just a uh, super, super nice family. And we were all looking forward to uh, to getting to know him much better once he got to, uh, got to Pittsburgh. You, you mentioned you not speaking any uh, French. Did you play any kind of a role in, in just assimilating him to the culture in Pittsburgh and maybe just the United States in general? Or was that more done within the dressing room with his teammates? Yeah, you know, whenever we drafted him, um, when he came to Pittsburgh, uh, Eddie Johnston um, had arranged for Mario to stay with the Matthews family in Pittsburgh. They were a, uh, a super nice family that um, lived in the South Hills, and uh, they had 
they had sons who were around Mario's age. And uh, I think that his uh, living there and getting acclimated to uh, all the things that changed in his life um, at that time, I think that it really helped a tremendous amount that he, uh, he was living with a family uh, with boys his own age. And um, I think that they really, uh, really helped him adjust to all the changes that he had that first, you know, I, he lived with them for a handful of years, but I think that that was really beneficial to his, um, to his moving to Pittsburgh. So we know obviously the legacy that he created uh, on the ice and, and honestly, even sometimes you could argue more so off the ice in Pittsburgh and the community uh, and everything that he's done from a philanthropical standpoint. Um, but from your perspective, as that team started to grow and the the um, skill level started to grow and the, the players started to come together more and new pieces started to come in as you built towards what eventually was that Stanley Cup championship in 91, uh, I want to put you on the spot here a little bit. Were there any guys in particular that you remember as those years kind of crescendoed to 1991 that stand out as being some of Cindy Himes' favorites to work with? And that doesn't mean the other guys weren't your favorites, but when you think of those guys, the ones that jumped to mind first? Oh, there were uh, there were a lot of guys that, um, that I remember from that era. Um, you know, you had uh, Davey Hannon, uh, Craig Simpson, Randy Cunnyworth. Um, there were a lot of guys that weren't weren't with us when we finally uh, won a championship in '91, but they played, uh, you know, with Mario in the mid to late '80s, leading into that. Robbie Brown's another one. Uh, great guy and um you know always uh always kept things light and uh I know Mario got a kick out of Robbie so um but there were a lot of a lot of guys that come to mind um probably some that the average fan now would have to look up on Google but um but uh yeah no we had we didn't have championship teams in, in the 80s, but we had a lot of character players who uh, who had passed through Pittsburgh. Well, I mentioned, you know, kind of that build up to the 91 team, and I wanted to go a little deeper into that group right now, starting with uh, their head coach. And you have, I see the smile come on your face when I say that. You've dealt with, uh, I think you told me, 17 head coaches in your time with the Penguins organization. And I'm curious where Badger Bob Johnson ranks on that list for you. Oh boy, he he's up, you know, he's up in the top three, no question. That the wonderful thing about Bob is that um, you know, he he was such a positive person. And uh, you know, you see the signs around the locker room, uh, a quote of Bob's. It's a great day for hockey. And, um, you know, any of the players who played for him could tell you that he, he meant that with every, you know, fiber of his being. He, um, he just loved coming to the rink. No day was a bad day. Every day was great. He was happy to be there. He made you happy to be there. He was just very, very optimistic person, very positive. And, um, you know, it's so, so unfortunate that we only had one year, one year uh, with him as our head coach. Absolutely. That was uh, obviously a, a, a horrendous situation with him passing away um, in the 1992 season. Uh, but kind of going back to his one year, which clearly made such an impact um, from both the personality perspective and the winning perspective. The Penguins go on to win the Stanley Cup that year in 1991. And uh, Cindy, I've talked to you know my broadcast partner Phil Bork. I've talked to Bob Airy. Um, I've talked to uh, you know Brian Trottier, guys that are still very much involved in the Penguins organization. Troy Loney, 
And every time we talk about Badger Bob, I, I don't know if they notice it, um, but I do because I don't I have the perspective of not having known him or not having necessarily know where they're going to go with the stories they're about to tell. But they start smiling. They get that smile on their face. And I don't know how many coaches throughout the course of hockey have that kind of a universal reaction from their players. Some players love a coach. Other players maybe can't stand them and are looking forward to the day when they're not there anymore. But it doesn't seem like that was the case with Badger Bob. Did you have a similar relationship with him? Yeah, I um, I I think you would be very hard pressed to find anybody that uh, that didn't enjoy being uh, playing under Bob Johnson. Um, but uh, you know, funny funny story uh, about Bob during that year. Um, you, you know, he would be so perfect for this month being gender equality month, because, um, you know, when I worked with him, he treated me like he would have treated any other, um, you know, media relations director. It didn't uh, dawn on him that you were a uh, female in, in sort of a man's world at that time, but, um, you know, we were uh, we were in the playoffs in '91, uh, and uh, I, for, I forget which city we were in, but um, I I would always stand right outside the locker room door. Um, locker rooms were smaller then; they're not as huge as they are now. Um, but I would stand right outside the locker room door and. Uh, that way, the media, if they needed anything, they knew where I was. The players just stuck their head out the door. They they always knew that I'd be standing there. But I didn't venture back in because locker rooms weren't set up the way they are now, you know, where, um, you know, you have a, a, a safe room to walk through uh, before you hit the change rooms and stuff like that. So... Anyway, we're on the road and I'm standing outside the locker room door after the morning skate and Bob's way in the back of the locker room where they had the coach's office, the visiting coach's office. And uh, all of a sudden I have a couple players come out to me and say, hey, Cindy, co coach wants you. And I'm like, well, where's he at? And they said, oh, he's back in the coach's office. And the coach's office is way, way in the back of the locker room. And I had to walk, I had to go right through the area where all the guys were changing clothes. And I, I sort of stopped and, and hesitated. And uh, Phil Bork happened to be walking by. And he goes, Cindy, you know the coach is looking for you. And I said, yeah, I'm headed there. And uh, he could tell I, I didn't know what to do, whether to walk in or not to walk in or and he looks at me and he goes cindy no guts no glory <laughs> and uh, i'm like yeah i hear you i just put my head down and went back as far as i could till i found him but it didn't even dawn on bob you know that uh that i wouldn't walk back there he just thought of me as you know any other teams media relations guy and uh he needed something and he called to you and he expected that you'd be there so um so he would be perfect for uh for gender equality month i'm sure for every month it'd be great to have yeah. bob still with us um that 91 team brings the stanley cup to pittsburgh for the first time in franchise history first time the city of pittsburgh uh, seize the cup. We, we've all heard the the call from Mike Lang. Stanley Cup is coming to the city of Pittsburgh. Um, I, I assume you were with the team, right, that night in Minnesota? Oh, yeah. Okay, so take me through that because I've heard it from a lot of different perspectives, but I'm curious from your perspective when you know the game is over. The Penguins are mm -hmm. running away with that game. Um, you're kind of bracing yourself for what's to come, but also you have no idea what's about to come because it's never happened before. Yeah, well, the the um, the neat thing is that I worked the uh, Stanley Cup Finals for the uh, for the NHL 
back then what they would do is they would uh, take one PR director from the East and one PR director from the West. And then you would work with that team. Like I would work with the team, you know, that made it to the finals from the East. And uh, so I worked uh, four NHL finals with the Eastern team um, in the late 80s and 1990, the year before we, we made it. So I, I sort of was right there and saw everything and knew what was coming. But of course, you know, it's totally different when it's your guys and it's your team. You know, you're, um, it's, it's so much more exciting that, uh, you know, when it's your team that, that, uh, that wins. But, um, you know, just to uh, show you that, you know, when you win for the first time, nobody really, uh, nobody really knows what, you know, what do you do next or what happens now or uh, things like that. Because if you remember um, watching um, the highlights uh, from the videos from 91, the uh, after the guys celebrate on the ice and they each one of them took their turn with the cup and did all that. I, I'm standing at the runway watching them and um, and all of a sudden I noticed that the cup and, and the whole team starts coming off the ice. They're coming towards me to come off the runway. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not positive, but I, I think they should all go out there and get the big team photo on the ice, you know, with the cup and everything. So um, Mario happened to be, he, and all, he, he was one of the first guys to reach me. And I said, I leaned over and I said, uh, Mario, you've got to go back out. And uh, he's like, why? And I said, you need to do the big group team photo. And he said, oh, yeah. So the whole team turned, does a U-turn in the end zone and goes back out to center ice. And that's when they did the big scrum and did the, uh, the team photo. But, you know, that's just an example of, um, you know, you're so excited anyway, and you don't really know when it's your first, the first time. So that picture does not happen potentially, if not for Cindy Himes. Well, no, it happens, but they'd had all go back out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. After a few more beers, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you guys get, you come back to Pittsburgh that night after you win. How much were you involved in the whole coordination aspect of that? Because I've seen the video about when you get back to the airport with all the fans and everything, um, and you guys getting announcements on the plane as far as how the numbers were growing. Um, mm -hmm. How involved were you with that whole process? Well, on the plane, it was, um, you know, it, it, it was surreal, to be honest. Um, everybody was so excited. And uh, the pilot did do that. Like, he would say, we have a report from the Pittsburgh airport. There's a thousand fans waiting, you know, to greet you when you return. And then maybe 10 minutes later, he'd say, I've got an update from the airport. There's 2,000 fans or 5,000. I don't think, even though we all heard that, and uh, I just don't think anybody was um, prepared for, uh, for the throng of, of people that were lined up. Literally, um, there was a pathway, um, single file, everybody... When they got off the plane and into the airport, you just, it was a sea of people to your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you. There was that just a single pathway that everybody went down. And um, as you're going through, people were all leaning over and like tapping you on the head and me on your shoulder and cheering and chanting and um it, it was surreal that's probably the best word for it but the players were uh were um i i think they were as surprised everybody was surprised there was just so many people there 
and then um, what they had what they had arranged was um, when we got through the airport, we all got on to uh, school buses, and um, it just so happened that uh, and they were kind of older school buses, and the school bus that I was on and a lot of the team um, had broken down. And so uh, first, we all ended up at Tommy Barrasso's house in, in his front yard. Meanwhile, driving around, and then our bus breaks down. And uh, literally, um, people were giving us rides um, back to the arena. And I remember the car that I was in, I had Brian Trache and Frankie Pietrangelo with me. And um, people were, if, if you were at a light or stopped anywhere where people could look over and recognize like Brian Trache or, or Frankie, um, you know, they'd be cheering and yelling. And I remember we stopped um, and this one car pulled up beside us and the guy in the passenger seat held up the morning newspaper. And it said, you know, Penguins Win Cup. And uh, he's holding up the paper so that uh, Trotz and Frank could see it. And um, it was just amazing. I don't think none, nobody got home till it was daylight. We uh, took us all night to get to the arena, get our cars and get home. But, uh, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of good stories about that night for sure. I'm sure well worth it with everything you guys went through at the end to, to, to get back to your bed, which probably felt pretty good after all that celebration following the win. And the best part was, Cindy, you guys did it again the next year. Um, yeah. I, know, I know there was some adversity, obviously, as we mentioned, with the, the passing of Bob Johnson mm -hmm. earlier in the season. Um, I wanted to ask you, I guess, two-parter, if you can kind of dovetail your answer to the first question into the second. What do you remember about that night when he was honored? at uh, Civic um, Arena. Um, I know I've talked to Phil Bork about that before, but I'm curious from your perspective and, and also to have Scotty Bowman come in and kind of steer the ship and the team get you know to where they wanted to be for that second straight season. What was that whole experience like? Yeah, I mean, how lucky were we as an organization to have three um, hockey experts like Craig Patrick, Bob Johnson, and Scotty Bowman, all working for the same team. And so um, what I remember about the night that we honored Bob at the game was, I, I don't think there was a dry eye any, anywhere in the house, but surely there was none around where I was at. Um, and I was up in the uh, press box and you look down and it was a sea of candles being lit um, for the ceremony. And um, I remember they played uh, Linda Ronstadt song um, over the speakers, but the ceremony was very emotional. Um, it was beautiful as far as you know, being able to remember what it looked like with all the candles lit throughout the uh, the entire arena. And, um, you know, it was it was as it should have been, you know, for honoring uh, such a great man. And obviously the the greatest honor beyond that night was going on to win the Stanley Cup, um, mm -hmm. a a run that was you know, kind of looking like it might not happen there for most of that season, but the team clearly turned it on down the stretch and were able to um, really propel themselves forward in the postseason and route to winning that cup. To get it second one in a row and, and for it to come after what you just mentioned, that emotional loss of, of Bob Johnson, was the second one any more significant to you in that sense? Well, I think, um, you know, they were both um phenomenal moments you know um but there there really 
you, you can't explain um, the feeling that you have when when you win it for the first time. And um, and that second year, 92, we had such a great team. You know, most of the guys all came back from the year before. And then we had a couple uh, new additions with uh, Craig Patrick's uh, trades. And, um, and we had a really good team. But if you remember, in 91, I think in January, we were uh, fighting for a playoff spot. So right. even that first year, um, you know, they really had to turn it around in the second half of the season. And, um, and then, you know, they were playing at their best when it got to the playoffs. But, uh, you know, same thing in 92, they struggled. And, um, you know, it was, it was very emotional. Uh, we all went on a charter flight out to, uh, uh, out to Bob's funeral. And, um, you know, those kind of things, I think, uh, stay with you, you know, something that that's sad. Um, but, uh, but the guys turned, you know, it was a long season, the guys turned it around and, uh, somehow, some way they won, uh, their first back-to-back -back championship. Yeah, I mean, pretty impressive when you consider all those obstacles they had to overcome. But as you mentioned, a pretty special team um, on the ice as well. I want to move forward. And a lot of people say that, you know, there's a very good chance the Penguins could have three-peated with how good they were uh, the following year. Um, but one moment in particular that year was what I wanted to ask you about and how involved you may have been with it. Uh, I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, on March 2nd of 1993, when Mario Lemieux finished up chemotherapy um, mm -hmm. for his cancer treatment, comes out to Philadelphia. It's still, it's even crazy to say out loud and scores his 40th goal of the season uh, mm -hmm. in a game at the Spectrum against the Flyers. Were you with him throughout that day or were you with the team in Philadelphia? No, no, I was with Mario. Um, Tom Rooney, who was our president at the time, um, had asked me uh, the day before, um, you know, if Mario wants to, uh, he had mentioned that he was, I guess, thinking about it. And Tom Rooney came to me and said, if Mario wants to uh, go to Philadelphia after his final treatment tomorrow, you know, I'd like you to go with him so that, uh, you know, he is somebody to, uh, to travel with and, you know, look after the media once he gets there. So, um, so I had to wait till the next morning. I packed a bag, but had to wait to see what he decided to do after his treatment. And, um, and sure enough, he said, you know, that he was headed to Philly. He was going to play that night. And so, um, we, uh, we went to, um, Greater Pittsburgh Airport, and our flight that was taking us to Philly was uh, had weather problems in Chicago, and so it was delayed once, delayed twice. It was delayed about four or five times, and uh, you know you could tell Mario was getting pretty antsy. He wanted to get to Philadelphia and maybe take a nap or something before the game. Um, but with all the delays, we knew that wasn't going to happen. And so uh, after about the fourth or fifth delay, Mario looks at me and says, um, do you know anyone with a charter plane that we could get to take us to Philly? And um, I, I kind of chuckled and looked at him and said, no, I, I really don't, Mario, but I'll bet you do. <laughs> and, and he did. So he made a quick phone call and said, okay, we got to go to uh, Allegheny County Airport. So we go back to the car and uh, drive to Allegheny County Airport in West Mifflin and uh, get there. And sure enough, the plane and a pilot is, is sitting right there waiting on us. So we get on the plane, it's a quick flight to Philly get to Philly 
go to the hotel. Mario, I think, went up, dropped his bag in his room, came back out, got in a taxi, went over to the rink, and uh, that's first that the team saw him was when he walked in and um, went back in the locker room, suited up, and uh, and played that night. Got a goal and an assist that night. So um, anyway, it was... Uh, you know, it, it, it was quite a memorable evening because Philadelphia, when I traveled with the team, was never, um, you know, one of my go-to cities because the fans there were always so rowdy. But, um, but you know, God bless them. That night when Mario went out on the ice for the uh, national anthem, uh, they gave him a standing ovation and the the whole building cheered, and uh, you know it was uh, it was quite the uh, quite the moment for sure. It's uh, I always say you know it was the perfect example of of um, you know it's a great moment um, overcoming. Uh, you know, rivalries that you may have that, uh, you know, Flyer fans um, were so receptive and welcoming. And uh, and it was really, uh, you'd expect that if he was in his own home building, but it was really nice and uh, for sure a uh, memorable moment. No question. One of the more memorable moments when you talk about that uh, Penguins Flyers rivalry for as you mentioned just the the realization of of human spirit uh, that night at the spectrum and as you also said uh, a pretty good night again on the score sheet for for number 66 uh, why wouldn't we be surprised in, in that kind of a situation so we have a couple more questions for you and then we can we can wrap this thing up um, from your perspective you mentioned uh, you know we've passed through a lot of different loops and bounds in your career um, the events that you've covered, the Stanley Cup final, the, the Canada Cup, the NHL All-Star game in Pittsburgh, um, doing things, you know, within the alumni range now, working your way up within the organization. Do you realize how many chapters in this franchise's history you're a part of? I mean, your five rings on your hand kind of speak to it. You're one of the few that actually has that. Um, but do you realize just how much you're woven into the fabric of the Penguins? Because you are. <laughs> you know, I never really thought of it that way, but um, the team uh, started in 1967, mm -hmm. and I started with them in 1977. So, other than their first ten years, I've been I've been with them ever since. So, it uh, it's over four decades and a very long time. But you know, I feel so so extremely lucky to have had all the experiences that I've had uh, over those four decades. Um, you know, all the Stanley Cups, uh, the Canada Cup, All-Star, the NHL Draft. Um, there, there's just so, so many great memories that uh, I, I am so so very fortunate and uh, grateful. So very grateful to have had the career that I've had there. Still rolling along too in your role with the Penguins as the Director of Community and Alumni Relations. And Cindy, I did wanna ask you before we wrap things up, for anyone out there that, that might catch this podcast, that might come across this and hear your stories, what kind of advice do you have uh, for young women, young girls that want to get into sports and maybe see that there's some kind of barrier there that's non-existent, but in their minds may exist? Uh, what do they you know, need to take forward from what you've been able to do uh, to have success in their own right? Well, I think things have, uh, they, you know, things have changed so dramatically um, in, uh, in all areas, but especially uh, in the sports industry. I mean, um, look, now you have uh, women coaches, you have women trainers, you have women owners, you have uh, 
you know, um, every department within the organizations. Um, I don't think there are uh, many barriers nowadays. I think that if you're a young lady in college and there's something, a job, a particular job in sports that you would aspire to, I think you should do just that because um, I think we're starting to realize that it's it's not the sex of the applicant uh, that's applying for a job, it's how well they can do that job. And, um, you know, women are proving every day that they're qualified uh, in so many ways. So I think uh, to be a college senior now, um, there are so many great opportunities out there for, uh, for young ladies and that they shouldn't um, stay away from any career that they feel uh, they will be good at. You know, um, they just have to work hard and be determined and um, and do their best. And, you know, they'll be surprised at, at how well they do and how well they succeed. Well said. And I think it's fair to say that, as you said, it, it doesn't matter on the sex of the person. It matters on the, the work ethic and what they bring to the table. There is no question that you have brought everything to the table, Cindy. And uh, I really appreciate you taking some time with me. Congratulations on what has been an incredible career that still has chapters to be written uh, within the Penguins organization. Those five rings, no one else is going to have them for a long time. It's only you and a couple others. Who are the people with five, by the way, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, I think there's only five or six, five, six, five or seven of us, but, um, and only two of us are uh, girls, and that be myself and Carol Coulson, who right. was the box office manager for years. And then you have Mario Philborg, Paul Steigerwald, Bob Airy, Mike Lang. Pretty, uh, pretty unique company and pretty exclusive company. That's amazing. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, Cindy, thanks so much for taking the time again. I really appreciate it. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying safe. And I do look forward to the day when uh, we can be in the office again and I can see you and we can chit chat again and in person. Yeah, I look forward to it, Josh. Thank you. Cindy has seen so much, been around for quite literally all the major moments, as you just heard there, over the last four decades. So great to hear her perspective on all that. And also to understand that she's carved out a path for herself that's not just admirable, but impressive. She's the type of person you think of when you think of Gender Equality Month. Because she's made it a point to make sure the fact that she's a woman means absolutely nothing when it comes to doing the job in a professional and stand-up fashion. And that's who Cindy Himes is, as much of a part of the Pens as anyone over the last 44 years. And trust me, it will continue that way in the years to come. I can't thank her enough for joining me on this episode, and I want to thank everyone out there for joining as well. And also want to remind you that if you aren't already subscribed to the Scoop Podcast, do me a favor, subscribe now. Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, all the pods available on all of those platforms. And of course, you can also access everything at pittsburghpenguins.com. Again, my thanks to Cindy Himes for joining me and to all of you for tuning in. I'm Josh Getzoff, and this has been episode 42 of the Scoop Podcast presented by PPG Paints. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.